Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Six. There were no portholes or shield glass windows looking out, but the meeting room did have a large display on the wall. It was currently showing a live feed from an exterior camera. A series of strobing, multicolored lights in the distance revealed themselves against the sparkling backdrop of border space by appearing to move. These represented the dozens of Zulu Dawn support vessels for city-state some of which were just a few kilometers off, while others paced at a distance of several thousand. Oh, um, okay, I replied. Well, it seems he's actually a private contractor working for church space agents, a spy, effectively. He was injected into Meerschaum before the mission even began. Also, I require that if and when his health allows, he be placed into custody and turned over to corporate space authorities once we arrive to face charges of espionage and conspiracy to commit murder. I could have demanded to have a union rep with me, but there wasn't anyone immediately available with the kind of clearance that made both UH and Meerschaum feel comfortable. I could have also delayed the proceedings while a certified gunnery advocate was located, which all parties found acceptable, but that could have taken weeks. Fleet had seen to it that we didn't have that much time. You require it? Yes, as Chief of Investigations for Montero Administration Security. Every face on the other side of the table stared at me with incredulity. Are you telling us that you're some kind of spy as well? Oh, no, certainly not. I was hired for that position after arriving in 21611B. Meaning you compromised the mission we hired you for? No, my employers there never knew of that mission, nor of anything related to it. To my knowledge, they still don't. Amaros looked like a dancer who didn't know the steps. He was utterly confused. A state I utterly understood. You took it upon yourself to become a double agent for us? Again, no. I refuse to answer any questions beyond the scope of my original mission. He studied me, then threw up his hands. I'm lost, Mr. DeSantos. You're making completely contradictory statements. I'm not, I replied conceitingly. 
But I recognize that it might look that way. You're operating without all the facts. Which you refuse to provide? I can provide some of them. They have a lock. Where? Where? 172 by 81 by 8231. Dead ahead. We're 50 million clicks from the nearest jump point. Tell that to them. They sent Jaybird after us? Mavis's voice was taut. John was clearly incredulous. Stina sounded almost surprised. Not really. Dieter just chimed in with a quick, What is it? And Chris didn't weigh in with an emotional response of any kind, apparently reserving such solely for impatience with his underlings. It was the only possible ship they could send, I explained, getting seated in gunnery and trying my best not to sound panicky. It wouldn't help us now. They know we know about it already, so they don't need to hide. It was that weird pulse from its dimensional transition that set off your alert, am I right? Yes, SS2 confirmed, her voice as normal as ever. We're in an evasive arc, people, Mavis announced, all business. I'm about to pull tighter. Prepare for inertial spillover. Though I was strapped in by now, I gripped my chair arms involuntarily, expecting the worst. The compensators were really good on Shady Lady, though, just like everything else, and I barely felt it. Just a low, creeping weight increase down and to the left. It lasted for about half a minute, and then slacked off. Okay, we're on a vector tangent from that thing, the captain announced at last, and I sighed in relief. I'm calling battle stations anyway. Everyone suit up. Ambient light then dimmed to a dull red, and I reached for a pressure suit. There were emergency lockers all over the ship, supplied with simple, one-piece pull-on things. These were specifically designed for survival inside the ship, in the absence of atmosphere, not for walking outside in the cold and radiation of space. Airtight, non-encumbering, and ugly, they had miniature internal circulation systems and large, flexible plastic hoods that bubbled out when pressurized. Each dedicated station had a hose input for running Atmo into and out of these suits from the ship's own life support system. If LS went down, they'd automatically disconnect and start feeding from internal sources, allowing six hours of standard use before going empty. We'd never warn them until now, outside of some quick drills before launch. They wouldn't have increased anyone's chances of survival from one of Liquidator's energy strikes, but nothing else would have either. We hadn't counted on Jaybird. When everyone had verbally confirmed pressure suit status, the captain ordered Dieter to kill Atmo rechargers, engage reclaim pumps, and bring us to internal vac. This would prevent fires or blowouts should the ship become holed. Are they talking to us? Chris asked, measured and calm, after engineering reported us as battle ready. I think so, John informed him. But the interference is pretty bad. The station is still soaking us with that energy beam. Looks like evasives worked, I stated, checking the readouts that flashed into my field of vision. They had point-blank laser and active IR sighting on us, but they've lost the lock. Passives show they're on the move and running sweeps, trying to reestablish. The station is probably feeding them telemetry, but the free jump is off angle from us now and too far for its onboards to pick up any of our returns. 
Auto assessment of their targeting system indicates they have a range and strike system of some kind, probably a DEW. New packs, I'd say. Do we have opticals yet? I can't see anything. Resolving now, Stina said, dropping the live telescopic light amp feed into the gunnery channel. Sure enough, it was Jaybird, or appeared to be. It was the only vessel anywhere in space that could have possibly cut us off. It made sense. The biggest surprise was it was armed. That was flabbergasting. Just how far along in development were these guys? John, can you beef up the HP bleed-off resolution? Heavy particles up. This gave me an assessment of the stray electrons and positrons thrown off by their fusion reactor, which, in turn, could be a thumbnail indicator of the available power the thing had for such systems as directed energy weapons. It came back as being at least five times higher than I would have expected for any vessel this size, and I cursed. You're seeing this? I asked them all, hoping for feedback while I thought about our options. That can't be right, Dieter supplied from engineering. Nothing that small can house a reactor that powerful. They must need it for the new star jump engine, Chris concluded. So they developed at least two game changers here. We've got to get back with this information. I'm working on it, I stated. I was expecting pop guns on this thing, but they could fire class threes or better with that much juice. If so, neutral particle streams from anything less than 10,000 kilometers are going to give us a nasty slap. Is that a euphemism for being killed? Stina asked, confused. Uh, yes, it is. Good work, Captain, I added to Mavis, with genuine appreciation. My pleasure, the bald, half-mechanical woman replied. They could have had us the moment they dropped in, Chris mused. We were surprised. They hesitated too, I observed. They aren't a fighter crew, but it's a tactical error I doubt will be repeated. Mavis, I need your go-ahead back here. We don't know if they were really going to attack, Chris inserted instead, an assessing tone in his voice. I didn't figure we had time for that now. It looked like it to me, and our pants were down. They still are. The station is supplying that ship with our general location. They'll regain their weapons lock if they can match vectors and close the distance. This is now a ship security matter giving Shady Lady's crew authority over its mission parameters, and you aren't crew. I need clearance to defend ourselves. This could start a war, Dieter pronounced gravely, which was true. Interstellar conflict with a nation that now had a massive technological lead. They still don't know who we are. Mavis pointed out from up front. That's right, I put in. We could be anyone, even another corporation from this side of the border. If we stay away from these guys, we can avoid political repercussions. And how do you propose we stay away? Chris demanded. I don't know yet, but I want to be able to protect us here. Otherwise, why am I aboard? I have no idea. Ouch. Okay, that one hurt. But I'd suspected it all along, and anyway, there were more pressing matters. Look, Chris, our choices are simple. Either we give up, or we don't. We can't give up, John injected. They'll arrest us, and I've had trouble over here before. I went to school for a year in corporate space, Stina put in. 
What's that got to do with anything? SS1 demanded. I'm fine with giving up, she replied simply. We have legal authority to be here. That won't stop them from throwing us in isolation cells. Why would they do that? We're not surrendering this ship or this data, Chris spoke, terminating their bickering. Ejok, watch Jaybird like a hawk. You'll get the authority to fire, but only if they strike first. That's not your call, Chris, I stated. You're mission leader, but the mission is over now. Ejok, the captain put in quietly. We can't create an international incident. I'll free up gunnery, but only if it looks like they want to attack, instead of just intimidate. It'll be too late by then, Mavis. They have the firepower, I'm telling you. Noted. We're not here for a battle, Chris put in, sounding smug in my ears. We're here to learn. Now drop it. This was a mistake. This was a big mistake. I didn't respond to him. All right, then, RML went on, directing the inaction. John, can you listen for data exchanges at least? I'm trying. It's not easy to sift through this noise. I have decrypts going on the most recent archive stuff, though. Stina added, We gathered a big enough sample of crack ciphers that we can run parallel comparisons on anything new that comes in. How do you see that? SS1 snapped. We've only broken a subset of... I dialed down their volume and dialed down my ire. Then I opened up a private channel to Mavis. Ejak, don't. Just don't. Come on, are you really okay with letting Jaybird get the first shot in? Why would I be? But we can't cause an international crisis over this. There'd be one anyway. UH would have to report us missing eventually. She was silent for a bit chewing it over. He'll be pissed. I can't have you at each other's throats. If we get out of this alive, I'll be happy to hear him yell. More chewing, more silence. Okay then, inputting captain's code now. Don't make me regret this. And suddenly, Gunnery was hot. He'll see it if he looks, Ejak. Then bolt my hatch. Lock me in here. If he drags me out of my chair at the wrong time, it could mean our lives. Right. There was a soft clunk behind as the door latches engaged, magnetically sealing gunnery shut. As captain, Mavis had ultimate authority over the ship. Her security codes could access every system, and she held the highest clearance of us all. She and Chris were supposed to work together on the mission, more or less as equals. This had manifested itself as him acting like a leader right from the start, and her acquiescing to many decisions because they pertain more to the mission than anything else. But there were limits to that sort of thing, and times when distinctions of rank and areas of responsibility mattered. This was one of them. You really think they'll attack? she asked, a thin but firm anxiety in her voice. They wouldn't have jumped at us unless they were willing to mix it up. Keeping this tech secret is clearly more important to corporate than losing a prototype of it, or for that matter than any repercussions our disappearance might bring. And as long as we fail to ID ourselves, they have the perfect right to do it. We're just faceless spies to them. They'll want to hunt us down and finish it, 
she observed grimly. You're sure they outgun us? Not completely. I mean, they have the power for a big gun, but they don't have much space for one. Unless they do, she mused. Star jump and power generation might not be the only innovations here. Depending on how fast that drive can be engaged, they could have a potato gun and still outclass us. If they can simply fire and jump, fire and jump, we might not even get a shot in. And if it's slow to engage? Well, let's just hope it is. Mavis was right. He was pissed. Chris seemed to notice that weapons were free after about an hour and cursed out loud. He yelled at me. He yelled at the captain. He yelled at everybody. And his attempt to get into gunnery was even more entertaining. Short of an electron torch, which Dieter had in engineering but pointedly refused to hand over, he couldn't open it by force and he seemed to understand it was unwise to try and compel a full-limbed cyborg to do, well, pretty much anything. It also would have been mutiny, which is a high crime in every part of space, even here, and even now under these circumstances. If Team were to capture us instead of just blow us out of the sky, we'd all likely get charged with espionage, but an attack of any kind on Mavis by a member of the crew would have put the perp into a whole other class of villain. He ordered me to come out. He ordered me to hang off the trigger. When I didn't respond, he stopped with the orders and just seemed to sulk. It was a distasteful side of the guy. To be fair, he hadn't been such a bad leader overall, and I didn't like to think of myself as a bad follower. But maybe I was. The plain facts were, Mavis, Dieter, and I worked for the ship. Chris, John, and Stina worked for the mission. The engineer hadn't weighed in, except to state that the captain was always going to be right, so just leave him out of it. Dieter had the ultimate practical power on the ship, since he could shut off any systems he wanted right at their source, but Chris hadn't suggested that he do so to Gunnery, maybe because he didn't think of it, or maybe because he knew the man wouldn't. So, I stayed at my station. The high ergonomic quality of Shady Lady's gunnery design included emergency bio-waste systems and even a water dispenser and ration bars, just in case the person in the chair had to remain in the chair for a while. I hadn't thought I'd need any of it when the cruise started. It was good to be wrong. After a time, I decided to break the brooding, which was seeming childish by this point. I called the ML on a private channel. I have an obligation, I told him. You know that. We all have one, Ejok. You better believe it's true that a fight here could lead to interstellar conflict. You know that neither Mirsham nor UH foresaw any of this. Can we at least come to an accord? Will you hold off any shooting unless there's absolutely no choice? That was always the plan, Chris. I'm not about to attack without a very good reason. They jumped in hot and a little off true. Mavis pulled us out of their targeting range, and now it's looking like they can't make up the difference. If they get a lock on us again, though, I make no promises. We absolutely cannot let them strike first. I don't believe they will. I don't have any reason not to believe it. And that 
about ended the conversation. We simply didn't agree on this or on just disagreeing. Civilities notwithstanding, I wasn't ready to unlock the door, or ask Mavis to unlock it, more like. Not because I thought he'd make a move on me now. I mean, having the captain's backing pretty much defanged him in that regard. But because I didn't trust the situation outside the ship. I couldn't afford any distractions, or for somebody to swing by gunnery to discuss my point of view or cruddy attitude. I had to watch all current data the situational status. I had to sim what I saw and prepare for as many outcomes as possible, likely or otherwise. I had to wait. Maybe for nothing. Hopefully for nothing. But maybe I was waiting for some telltale, long-range optical evidence of a missile cluster racing out from Liquidator. Maybe I was waiting for it to take up an attack position in anticipation of firing a broadside with directed energy weapons. I had no defensive techniques for dealing with things like those, but it still wasn't a party to be late to. And then all the shipwide alarms sounded again. Graviton, EMP, targeting lock, just like before, and just like before, Jaybird appeared smack in front of us, well within its likely attack range. Hold on, Mavis called over the open channel, and Shady Lady's wonderful inertial compensators were hard-pressed to manage the sudden G's from these maneuvers, hard-pressing me into my seat. Both John and Stina cried out in surprise, the ship's sideways zag catching them off guard. It sounded like Stina had been up from her seat and maybe thrown headlong. The auto-fire protocol I'd put into place after the last surprise visit kicked in the instant the free jump's weapon lock was confirmed. Our port and starboard missile tubes emptied their loads simultaneously, then rotated, ready to do it again. Our single forward multi-spectrum gun spat a 14 gigawatt beam of energy that ran through a very healthy range of the EM spread every single millicycle, fully tracking Jaybird for a solid three seconds. At the exact moment Shady Lady was turning and lashing out, it was also rocked hard, and I heard a thick bang from somewhere aft beyond the bulkhead. Damage warnings flashed in my retinals, and I felt a swinging laterally through the compensators. We're hit! I shouted just as my displays went blank. I'm blind up here! John cried at the same time. Passives are down! I have damage! put in Dieter. Electrical and structural! We were all talking over each other, but Mavis cut us off. Pipe down! And we instantly did while the ship itself seemed to straighten out. All hands, sound off in order. One by one, we reported in, including Stina, who seemed shaky, but okay. Dieter, Mavis then ordered. Damage report. Shady Lady's engineer spoke quickly, and with a grimness I didn't like. We had a kinetic hit, port side aft. It must have buckled the outer hull and severed a trunk line. We have total power loss to, uh, third zone systems, as well as the forward gun. Comp, life support, and main drives are all fine, and there's no breach of the inner hull. Sensors, Mavis said next. What have you got? Because I have nothing up here. 
John still sounded shocked, overwhelmed. We're doing a hard reset now, he replied. It takes time to calibrate. I, I don't know what happened. There was a flash, different than the one before. Everything went down. Gunnery? I confirm that the forward multi-spec is redlined. Missile systems are still green. I put UV pulse communications on active for those because of the interference effect off the hull. UVPC only works over a very short range, but it was enough. Of the eight darts launched, I have two impact confirmations on the target, two more lost to what I assume was enemy fire, and the rest all... Hmm. The rest sent back auto-abort SIGs. What? Chris asked, perplexed. Why did they do that? Looks like they got kill confirmations from their own onboard sensors and self-destructed as per SOP. The free jump must be gone, but I can't tell for sure with eyes shut like this. I said we're working on it, John barked. Yeah, Stina put in, pointlessly, and a beat behind. Dieter? The captain queried, ignoring the chatter now that it was clear we were mostly intact. What's our stealth capability right now? Embedded sensors show hull damage only at the point of impact, he relayed after a moment. I would have to get out there and check for sure, but right now it looks like there are no rad or thermal leaks. I'd say we have a small spot on the hull that could be visible to enemy sensors. Maybe only up close, but I don't know yet. Can we return to silent running? Does pre-cooling still work? It, um, yes, it looks okay. Should I engage? Yes, do it now. Ejok, she then pursued. Did we fire first? I scanned the log, read the numbers twice to myself to be sure, then spoke up. Yep, by .37 seconds. So they were trying to strike first. Absolutely, and I still don't know what it was they hit us with, but I will soon. Let me gather my data. I'll present a report in 20 minutes. Sounds good, and thank you. My pleasure, I replied, truly feeling the words, truly happy to be able to say them. I took a deep breath of recycled air inside my plastic hood. It was sweet, like candy, being alive was like candy. Everything was different now. We had learned what was likely the biggest secret of modern times about the greatest technological breakthrough in centuries, a space vessel capable of intrasystem transit, the most advanced starship in history. And I'd just blown it up. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com 
and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.